Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Nick. Hey, amen. Now, I came early today, and uh, because I was preaching, I thought I'd kind of get here and see what was going on. And uh, listening to, I came in while the worship team was practicing for the songs, and they sung that song. And uh, the Lord just kind of spoke to me and, and let me know of his faithfulness to me. And I've been a, a believer for 47 years. I'd like to say I got saved at two, but that would be a lie. And that would not be good to lie in this place. He'd probably zap me right now. But uh, I was 24 and uh, when I came to the Lord. And uh, I look back over that time of the faithfulness of God in my life. And he has never failed me yet. And uh, I, I thought when I was a young believer... I guess 24 could be young, from my perspective it is right now. Uh, but as a young believer, I, I, I used to remember going to church and seeing people that were like my age and older. And I'd be struggling through something and it was almost like they would come and pat me on the head. It's gonna be okay. God is faithful, All right? I feel like I'm that guy patting you on the head today. It's gonna be okay. God is faithful for whatever you're going through. He is good, and he has never failed me yet. And I've seen him move the mountains, and I believe he's going to do it again. Don't you? All right, that's the God that we serve, all right? Uh, Craig mentioned that uh, Pastor Blackburn uh, had surgery last Monday and, and so forth, but he has not recovered fully from that eye surgery. Uh, again, that's why Jeff's there today. I'll be speaking there tonight uh, as well for him. And uh, I just thought we would take this time and pray for him, okay? Will you agree with me on that? Father, move a mountain today in Pastor Blackburn's life and bring healing to his eyes. Lord, let them be perfectly whole once again, and we pray any complications would be gone, and uh, let this be a day of miracle for him. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Talked a little bit about myself, and it kind of ties in because I am, I am continually amazed of uh, the goodness of God in my life because I know what I was and did in the first 24 years of my life, and uh, I don't know if I shared with some of you before in being here, but uh, there was a time when uh, I had marijuana growing in my backyard. Actually, I was saved at that time. And uh, I, even after I was a newborn Christian, I thought, well, I guess God made this, so it, it's okay to smoke. And uh, I remember my wife and I sitting in our living room uh, getting high, and uh, we were brand new believers, and I thought, well, uh, maybe this is not good. And uh, so we got rid of the marijuana. We didn't sell it, and we didn't have a bonfire and stand around, but what we disposed of it. I just want you to know that. But there were things in my life that before that time that y you wonder, uh, and you're amazed that God would call you. I'm amazed that this morning, that guy who's been transformed by Christ is standing before you. I'm amazed at that. I'm amazed that for 30 years I've been at Southeastern University as a professor and uh, in addition to that now as a provost type of thing. And I'm amazed that this sinner is doing that because at times you in your own life can give up on you and wonder if you know, God can do anything. I'm amazed too because I grew up in a home that was 
was non-Christian, all right? If we went to church, it was Easter, all right? Uh, that was like our regular time of going, are you a regular church goer? Yeah, Easter, all right? And that, w- that would be about it. And we were really not very consistent in that as well. And uh, my father was, I never heard him admitting mistake. Uh, I think he was kind of like God in his own eyes. And, and I, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but there, there's times that sometimes you look at people and wonder if they would ever become a follower of Christ. And I, I'm going to be honest with you, I felt that way with my dad. Uh, he's not going to make it. Uh, I, I just don't think there's even any hope. And I remember one time, uh, I got a call from my sister. I have three sisters, and, and only one's a, a believer. And she called me, and she said, you know, I've been praying for Dad, and I, I think he's close to the Lord. And I'm thinking, really? And I'm thinking, too, I, I haven't even been praying for him because I just thought he was, he was too far gone. Somebody like him is not ever going to make it type of thing. All right, you ever been there? Uh, my wife's dad was... Uh, an alcoholic. Friday night, he would, he would get his paycheck, and I think he actually cashed it at the bar. Uh, when we had dates on Friday night, she said, get there before my dad comes home from the bar, because even though he made a, gave us permission to go out, he can change his mind. It, please come before dad comes home from the bar, because he's he, he just drunk at that point. Uh, we witnessed to him, and, and there was a time when he just he disappeared. We hadn't heard from him in a year. He was staying with my sister and my brother-in-law and left them one day, didn't say where he was going. And it was over a year that we, we heard from him. Didn't know what happened. Did, is he dead? Did he get drunk? And they were living in northern Minnesota. And he left there. And again, we don't know where it was. And he left in the midst of winter. It's cold in Minnesota in the winter, a little bit colder than Florida. And, uh, we were praying for him that something would happen. You know, Lord, let us at least know where he is. And we heard from him a year later. He had he'd gotten saved through the Salvation Army in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, probably in a soup kitchen type of thing, and was now working for them. And again, he was one of those that you just wonder, will he ever turn to God? You know, is there any hope for him? And sometimes you, you, you check those people off, you know, why even bother? Maybe you work with somebody like that. And maybe uh, you've been praying for somebody for a long time and it's finally at the point, uh, is, is this not going to happen? Maybe it's your own child. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's your parent. Maybe it's a brother. Maybe it's a sister. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's the people that, that, that work with you, around you type of thing. You know, we fall on with that people. And, and, and what I have entitled the message today is uh, Burning Coals on God's Chosen Vessels or God's Instrument. All right, that, that's going to make sense at the end. Trust me on that. But we are God's instrument. We are, we are God's, uh, God's children. And, and there are people that God sees, I mean, all his children, there is potential for every single human being to come to Christ. There is that potential. Will it happen? No, because people have their own choice. But what is our part as a Christ follower in regards to praying for them? I mean, if we give up on them, who is going to pray for them? 
I, I've been praying for some people for like 20 years. And I'm not going to give up because I've seen God move mountains. And I know he can do it again. And I, I believe at some point in, in some part of their life, just like God did me, you know, when I was 24, and I knew somebody had been praying for me. It was my grandparents. And I knew their prayers had effect. Even after they died, I knew that their prayers had eternal value and that I, I became a believer pretty much because of the prayers that they had sent up for me. I believe that. I believe that that's a part of how God chooses to work in situations. Now, there's a situation in the Bible in Acts where there's a fellow by the name of Saul who later is named Paul. Uh, he's the guy who wrote half the New Testament. And when he was Saul, he was a strong Jew. And when it came to this newfound thing of Christianity and following Jesus, he thought that was heresy. He thought Jesus was a fake. He thought he was blasphemous. And so as a strong Jew and a member of the Pharisees, he thought it was his responsibility to do what was necessary to get rid of this newfound faith and its believers because they were against everything that he stood for and even just an abomination before God. He was there in Acts chapter 8 when, when Stephen, the believer, is being stoned for his faith and he's holding the coats of some of the people that stoned him. He's watching that. And then he takes on the responsibility of carrying papers with names of, of new believers that he's found out so that they can be arrested and put away because he's doing God's work in his mind. Well, on, on this road to Damascus where he's traveling because he has some papers there and some names there that he's going to turn in so they can arrest these people, he has an experience with the risen Lord. Throws him off his horse. Jesus says to him, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and as far as Paul's concerned, that was the risen Lord. That wasn't just a vision. That was an actual presence of Jesus saying that to him. And, and, and Paul turns his life over to Jesus at that point. But he, he's, he's blinded. And he's led back to the city. And, and God then whispers into a new believer's ears by the name of Ananias. And he says, go, go and find this guy Saul and mentor him and teach him. Look at it. I think they'll put it on, on the screen here. Acts 9, 13 to 15. And look at Ananias' response. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Like, God, do you know what you're doing? You want me to go to this guy? I mean, at this point, the believers are thinking maybe this is a trick. Maybe Paul is, you know, this is a whole false thing so he can find out who we are. And then in verse 15, it says, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen vessel to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. This man is my chosen vessel. God saw that. Ananias didn't. The believers didn't at this point. They were still skeptical of who this guy Saul was. And is this a trick? Maybe God is saying that to us at times. You know, go pray for this person. Oh, come on. 
My father's too far gone. He'll never turn to the Lord. And by the way, my father came to the Lord when he was 70. He died when he was 72. Go to be with the Lord. Right? In those last years, there's hope even when somebody is too old or too cold. Those people that we put in our life. Who are the Saul's that are in our life that we're saying no to and we're spending no time in prayer for their soul? We just think they're too far away. At times we felt a kind of an inkling inside, go and talk to them. Oh, no, it's a waste of time. They're just going to put me off and they're going to reject me. I don't want to do that. No, they're, God, they're just too far gone. I, I, I think this is what Ananias was saying. And God is saying maybe, hey, they're my chosen vessel. They too have an opportunity to come. And God wants to use them. And maybe he's waiting for us to be the Ananias in their life to go to them. Now, you know, when, when it comes to, Craig was, was mentioning a class, a small group on evangelism. I don't know about you, but I kind of shudder at that. I'm an introvert. I mean, it's amazing I'm speaking to you here. But I'm an introvert, and, and to think about just, I've seen people that can just walk up to somebody and start sharing their faith, and the person gets saved. You know, a waitress will come up, and they're at a restaurant, and they'll start talking about Jesus, and they'll have this little prayer meeting. I, I, that's not me, right? I want to kind of crawl under the table at that point, and I'm, I'm at, at the same time, I'm amazed. So when I think of evangelism, it's just, that's not me. And yet we are all called to do that in some sort of format. So I want to talk about that because sometimes it's difficult to share our faith. How do we put it in words? You know, I never had a, you might say I never had a Bible class or I'm not a theologian. How do I put it in words, you know, what I'm supposed to do in this particular situation? How does that go about? You know, how can I make it clear to people? I remember reading a story by Chuck Swindoll. And he talked about how to put it in words, and he was saying, sometimes we struggle with that. Let me read what he says. He says, one of the toughest assignments in life is to communicate clearly what happened during a time when emotions were high. People who fall in love can hardly describe it. Those who endure a calamity or experience or a sudden loss often convey the information in a confused manner. The same is true of car accidents, he said. The following is a series of actual quotes taken from an insurance or accident form, and they are the actual words of people who tried to summarize their encounters with trouble. Here's their statements. I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. I don't know how a stationary truck comes the other way. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. Well, thank you. In my attempt to kill a fly, I drove into a telephone pole. I've been shopping for plants all day, and I was on my way home. As I reached an intersection, a hedge sprang up, obscuring my vision, and I did not see the other car. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my vehicle, and vanished. Truly a miraculous moment, right? The indirect cause of that accident was a little guy in a small car with a big mouth. Here's one I love. I pulled away from the side of the road. I glanced at my mother-in-law and headed over the embankment. <laughs> it can happen sometimes, all right? Yeah. And, and the interesting thing is that these are all true statements on forms. And I think that when it comes to our faith, we, we, how do we put it into words? How do we do it? 
Now, I would say to you first, and just in applying what we're talking about here, is just tell your story. Just tell people what Jesus has meant to you and how he has come in your life and how things are different and how you're walking through. Just tell your story. You don't have to quote scripture. You know, you don't have to be a theologian. Just tell the difference in your story because nobody can deny that. They might say, I don't believe the Bible, but you're there in front of them saying, hey, I'm just telling you, this is what has happened to me. They can't deny that, all right? They might not like what you're saying, but they can't deny that particular factor. There's an interesting way as well that, that God shares how we can say our faith. It's, it's sometimes attributed to uh, St. Francis of Assisi, all right? He was an Assisi boy, but Assisi, all right? Uh, that's how they said his name. But uh, he said, um, preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. You probably heard that before. Preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. In other words, our life ought to speak something. Our life ought to demonstrate something. A, a week ago at Southeastern, as the provost, I, I usually at the beginning of the year, the faculty come and we have a, a faculty seminar. And usually on the last day of that seminar, I just share what, you know, what I feel is the word of the year. And I, I came across a passage in Romans chapter 12 that for some reason, it just really stuck off the page to me. And I just sense God saying, share this passage. And in Romans chapter 12, he, he makes a transition in his writing from telling people you know, what he believes because he's going to go to Rome. And he wants to prepare there for his visit. So he's talking about his theology and so forth and all that he believes up to the 12th chapter. And then he starts to make application. Okay. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says, therefore... In view of God's mercies, present your body as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of service. Stop conforming to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He starts to challenge us in how to live. And then he, then he says, you know, don't think of yourself more highly than you should. And then he starts talking about different gifts that we have. If you have the gift of teaching, teach. If it's giving, give. Give generously. If it's leading, lead. Do it with diligence. And then he gets to the ninth verse and he starts talking about some practical things that are there. So what I did for the faculty is I put verses 9 through 21 up on the board and I said, this is just, I think, how we need to, to focus on how we are supposed to live towards one another. Because even as Christ followers on a Christian campus or in a Christian environment, we can have difficulties and, and, and problems and, and maybe not get along, right? Uh, and just be real about it. And so when uh, I, I gave them, and, and I kind of shared what I'm sharing with you now, but in particularly in the 14th to the 21st verse, I want you to look at that in how we are to live and preach with our life. So I think they're going to put it on the screen, and there it is. It says, bless those who persecute you. Well, I'm going to tell you, if people put you down or they bully you and you bless them, you know, that's kind of different. That's not the normal reaction that they would expect. So bless them. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And then look in the next verse. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Well, that's kind of stinking at times. Somebody steals my parking place, I want to do something. I want to put tire, you know, nails under their tires, right? But it says don't do that. <clears throat> B 
Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In other words, sometimes there are people you can't live at peace with. And maybe you don't want to live with peace with, but you are to do that, even though they might not respond. The next verse, 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Let God take care of these things. You don't have to do it. Let God put the nail under their tires. It's mine to avenge, God says. I will repay, says the Lord, on the contrary. And then it says this. It's a quote from Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Your enemy, if he's hungry, feed him. I wonder if we would do that as a country to people that we would see as our enemy. If we would give graciously, bestow upon them gifts of some kind, free. If they're hungry, if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, uh, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I, I went back to Proverbs 25, and I asked them to put that up there as well, just to read this last part again. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. And notice it adds this, and the Lord will reward you. I don't know how. I don't know if he'll, you know, you'll get a check in the mail or something like that. I don't know how, but it says God loves and is happy and will bless you when you're kind to your enemy. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I've been, like I said, I've been a believer for 47 years. I struggled with what it means to put, show kindness, you will put burning coals on somebody's head. I picture that, and I'm looking at you right now, and your head's on fire, right? I'm blowing your mind, and maybe that's what he means, blowing his mind. But really, uh, in, in the last couple of weeks, I kind of dug in this even more. And let me just kind of take you down a side road to give you the context of this. Let me take you to the Old Testament, all right? Any, anybody Game of Thorns? Thor, thrones? Yeah, Thorns. Game of Thrones? Anybody? You, well, don't put up your hand or okay, you're okay. Uh, maybe you don't want to be spotted. I think I watched it once, but I have family members that watch it all the time. And, and one family member has told me, he said, man, every time I watch it, I, I think I'm getting into this character and they kill him. Right? You never know who they're going to kill. You know, it's back in, you know, when kings and castles and all that kind of stuff is going on. That's the Old Testament. I mean, I, I almost wonder if they go to the Old Testament for one of these stories. And, and in 2 Samuel chapter 13, if you start at verse 1, there's this interesting story. David, King David, you know, the guy who slew Goliath, uh, you know, with his slingshot type of thing, and then and later had the affair with Bathsheba. I, I kind of feel that David is on the downside of his kingdom at this point. And he has multiple wives and multiple children from those wives. From one wife, he has a son named Ammon. From another wife, he has a son named Absalom, and, a, and Absalom's sister from that same mother is Tamar. Ammon is fascinated and infatuated with Tamar. He just loves her. He thinks about her all the time. She doesn't know it. And uh, at the same time, he feels he can never have her. So he's depressed, has all this love, and he just thinks it's never going to happen. So his friend, Jonadab, says to him, he said, hey, I have a plan of how you can, you know, connect with Tamar. Tell your father, David, you're sick. And ask him to send 
Tamar to you and have her cook a meal and it'll just kind of help you feel better. So David arranges that. And so when, when Tamar comes, uh, Ammon has all his servants leave and there she is breaking bread and he's smelling the bread and she said, your bread's ready. And he said, well, would you come into the bedroom and feed it to me? And so she comes in and again, there's no servants here and he grabs her and he starts to make love with her and she's, she's you can't do this. Don't do this, All right? Ask David, maybe he'll, he'll, he'll give us permission, but don't do this. In other words, don't rape me. But he does rape her. And as soon as he's, he's done making this, I, I can't even call it love, when he's done raping her, his love for her turns to hate. And in fact, the scripture says he, he, he was so much in love, his hate was greater than the love that he had for her. And he says, get out of here. And she says, you can't do this to me. They say, now you've taken me and so forth. You can't do this. And he puts her out. In fact, he calls his servants in. He says, get her out of the room and lock the door. And she, her clothes are ripped. She puts ashes on her face to show her, her disgrace and her, her, her grief. And her brother Absalom sees her. And he said, did, did Ammon do something to you? And she says, yes. And he says, well, come and, and live at my house. I'll take care of you. David hears about the story, he is angry, but nobody does anything. Nobody does anything. And two years go by, and Absalom comes up with a plan. His sheep shearers have sheared all their sheep, and it's kind of like a time of celebration, kind of like harvest time. So he calls David, and he says, I want you and the family to come to kind of celebrate this time of year. And David says, no, I don't want to put you out, and so forth, and, and so forth, but let the rest of your, your family come. So all the brothers come from all the different wives. And Absalom's plan is this. He tells the sheep shearers, he said, I'm going to tell you at a given time during this event, this meal, I, I want you to kill Ammon. Oh, we can't, look, I'm telling you to do it. And so at the given time when all the families there and they're eating, he, he says, now's the time, and they kill Ammon. The rest of the brothers freak out, they jump on, they jump on their motorcycles, no, their mules, and they, and they get out of there. And, and David hears that what has happened, but he hears even worse. He, Absalom has killed all your sons. And he's freaking out, but Jonadab, remember him, says, no, he only killed Ammon. And David is grieved. And Absalom leaves, goes to another country for three years. And David grieves because, you know, not only is one set is done, but the other son has, has, has left. And uh, Joab, his commander, sees the grief in David, and he comes up with a plan. I, this is crazy. This is the Old Testament. I'm saying this, so maybe you'll read the Bible because there are crazy stories like that. They ought to make movies of this stuff. Right? This could be a whole series on Netflix. Right? I gave the idea, so maybe I ought to get credit. But anyway, uh, so w what happens is Joab says he goes to Tekoa, not Georgia. Right? Jeff would probably have it be in Georgia. But goes to Tekoa, and he finds a wise woman there. And he, he says to her, he says, I want you to go to David and tell them this story. Tell them that your husband is dead, and you have two sons left. And they were out in the field working one day and they got in the fight and nobody was there to stop them. And the one threw the other one down and the other died. And now the townspeople are ready to kill your other son. Tell him that story. 
And, and that's where we are in this particular verse in 2 Samuel 14, verse 7. It says this. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant, they said. Hand over the one who struck his brother down so that they may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Then we will get rid of the air as well. They will put out the only burning coal I have left. Let me say that again. They will put out the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. What is she saying? The only hope I have, the only hope I have of a family, if they kill my other son, is gone. In other words, there's this image that the Jewish people have. There, there's hope. And if you at least have a burning coal, there's hope. So heaping burning coals on somebody is somebody who just has that one little coal is to give them more hope. Isaiah says this. He says, a bruised reed God will not break. A smoldering wick he not, will, will not put out. In other words, if he sees there's a little bit of hope on somebody, he's, he's going to, there's a little bit of spark of, of life there. He's going to breathe on it and puff on it to get that fire going and throw some more wood so that hope will grow big. And what he's saying is, when you show kindness to your enemy, when you show kindness to somebody and they're undeserving of it, it blows their mind. It really does. It, it, it lets them know that there is hope in this life. There is an answer in this life. There's something crazy going on in the world, but there is a savior that is there to bring some sort of sense to everything. And, and that's what... What God was saying to Ananias when he said, go to Saul. He's my chosen vessel. And I see something in him. And I want you to mentor him and teach him because you're, you're showing love to him. You're the type of people he would have killed. And as you share with him and love him, you're heaping burning coals on his head to let him know there's really some truth to this newfound faith that he has, that God is alive and well. There is hope. And I think part of our role is to show kindness to strangers. Kindness to our neighbor and kindness to our enemy. And I think it's like throwing burning coals on their head and saying, hey, there is an answer in this life. There might be a lot of crazy people out there. People who want to rob you and steal and, and, and you know, hack into your website and all that other kind of crazy stuff that goes on today. I, I, I get so tired of changing my password. I just think, can people be honest? I have trouble. Look at my age, my hard drive is full. I have trouble remembering all these passwords. I have to write them down, then maybe somebody's going to steal that. And then what am I going to do? You know, my life will be lost. You know, I could worry about those things. But I have to trust in God, all right? And I want to give people hope. And so I need to love my neighbor and my enemy and care for them and pray for them and do kindness to them because maybe it'll blow their mind. And maybe they'll say, hey, there's something about you that's different. What drives you to do acts of kindness to me when I'm so mean to you and so hard on you? Well, let me tell you about my Savior who loves me and has given me hope, right? Are you with me on this? Does this make sense? You know, it's, it's one thing to talk about evangelism one way, but there's another way to act on it. 
And I really believe that the best way that we can tell people about Jesus is by how we live. That it's different. That it's kind. It's peace-loving. It's gentle. It's compassionate. It's loving. Isn't this what God did to us and does for us every single day? His faithfulness is everlasting. Father God, as we we close in prayer, we just thank you for your love. And Father, maybe during this talk this morning, there were souls that you brought across our mind, people that we have written off as hopeless. Like I said, too old, too cold, too hard, too stubborn, too far gone. They would never become a believer. And yet you love them just like you love us, unconditionally. You died for them just like you died for us. And you care about them just like you care about us. And we need to love them with the same love you have. Even if they're our enemy, you know, they're, they're against us, they cause us trouble, they're mean to us. Even then, Lord, that we might reflect that love. And if there's anyone here that feels that way about themselves, let them see your love. Let by coming here at this church... Let's see love and kindness in action, not just in word. Let us show that. And so if you're struggling, I just want to agree with you, and I don't want to embarrass you, but there's somebody out there that, hey, I got that guy. I know that Saul. I have one. It's, you know, somebody in my family. If that's you, just lift up your hand for a second. I just want to agree with you. All right? I see a hand, a couple. Yeah, I see a lot. Father, we agree for these souls. And we pray that we would be an influence on them with our prayers, first of all. And then you will give us ways that we can show them your love and be kind to them and gracious and compassionate. And we just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, have a good day. All right. And in fact, some of you take off tomorrow too. All right. I give you that. I, I talk to your bosses. It's okay. All right. Have a great day. <laughs>